0: Welcome to this episode of same, same, but different. I am your host Claudette Lapitan. Today we welcome Zach Girardello, who is the member engagement and partnership manager at the diversity council. Zach, thank you for taking the time to join me today on the podcast. Can you tell us about yourself and why the topic of diversity and inclusion is important to you?
1: Yes, absolutely, and and thank you for having me. Um, it's a yeah, great privilege, I suppose, to have the opportunity to discuss why D D&I is important to me, to workplaces, and and you know more broadly to everybody, <laughs> more broadly throughout society. Yeah. I think, for me personally. I've worked for a number of years in the corporate sector, um, uh, not-for-profits, peak bodies, and always been interested in, I suppose, workplace culture, uh, what makes, you know, work an enjoyable place to be, and more broadly, just how, you know, we can get the best out of each other and individually when we're happy um, and we're part of a a cohesive working team. So, for me, you know, D&I has always been something that was on the peripheral in terms of Something that exists in a business um, and it wasn't until uh, i worked at a number of different organizations where there were incidences of um sexual harassment bullying in one instance uh, an organization i was uh, volunteering with there was you know more extreme versions of uh, sexual assault so that to me really i suppose was a bit of a, a moment in terms of how are we you know in 2020 2021 you know still experiencing this structural inequality what are the mechanisms available to me as an individual to bring about the type of change that I think is so crucial and needed? So, you know, outside of uh, you know volunteering and community groups and um, advocacy work and activism, you know, being a part of you know, I suppose DNI initiatives internally um, is a really great mechanism for uh, individuals in the workplace to actually drive the workplace to change, but also for the workplace and more broadly the, the organisation to bring about the type of social change for issues that are really important more broadly throughout society. So that was my wow, that's good. into, yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. No, that's really impactful when you definitely see that type of, the type of thing happening in your real world, right? It really makes it a reality. So you're now a member engagement and partnership manager. What what does that mean? And what do you do in your role?
1: Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. I'm really fortunate in the, the job that I have to work with a number of organizations throughout Australia um, in assisting them and advising them on their DNI initiatives. So really really lucky to talk to you know some really large corporates, government departments, not-for-profits, a whole range of different industry sectors to discuss some of the challenges that they face internally around their DNI initiatives. Uh, but just more broadly as well, uh, I suppose the type of work and initiatives that these workplaces are taking around creating greater levels of you know workplace safety, cohesion, uh, respect, Yeah, really, really exciting work.
0: Yeah, wow. So are there particular trends that you're seeing in those organisations that you're speaking to? Uh,
1: I think there's definitely um, a lot of work going on more broadly. I think in the last few years with uh, what happened in the US with the Black Lives Matter, within the Australian context, you know, the same-sex marriage plebiscite, uh, and even then more broadly with, you know, the bushfires in 2020 and the impact that that's had on workplaces uh, wanting to, I suppose, further develop their DNI initiatives, their internal work, supporting workplaces, um, but also from a corporate responsibility perspective, having a voice and showing their commitment to really important issues. So I think, you know, a lot of workplaces and corporates And not-for-profit organisations are doing a lot of really amazing work in this space, upskilling, creating greater levels of organisational awareness, you know, addressing things like unconscious bias and some of the, you know, barriers that occur within the workplace more broadly.
0: Do you see anything, any trends in... What perhaps these organisations have gone through already prior to coming to you? I know that when I'm speaking about diversity and inclusion, sometimes it's not really a priority unless you've already gone through something terrible, which is just horrible. Uh, but are organisations in Australia trying to preempt things instead? Is it are they recognising the risk, or is it only when things are going bad that then they think, oh, we should put things in place to avoid this again?
1: Yeah. I think there's a number of reasons and I think, you know, it can be something as simple as, you know, there are a team within a division that are really interested in creating greater levels of organizational awareness. There are, you know, times when an incident has occurred in the workplace and they haven't felt equipped to, you know, address those matters. But I also think, you know, there's just broader governance, you know, due diligence in terms of risk evaluation because I think for me, the biggest insight I've had to, you know the driving or the motivation as to why you know organizations want to be more proactive around dni isn't so much because a specific incident has occurred as it is it's a continual learning part working in dni you've never you know completely updated all of your policies or all of your planning and your procedures and the work's done you know an incident in the workplace can happen at any time and it doesn't matter how well informed or educated or skilled the team is you know, you're always going to have to be continually doing this work because we're never going to get to a place where we've addressed, you know, the structural inequality that exists in the real world and how that then has an impact in the, um, you know, the workplace more broadly.
0: I think to one of the troubles I'm having is that, yes, it's identified as a priority, but the why, it's really getting senior leaders and I don't mean to be crude, but the older white men <laughs> who haven't had to experience uh, these feelings of exclusion to face some real realities that they've never had to even really consider. So by the time they get to you, have they already done a bit of that deep exploration of their own biases or, or upbringing or anything like that? Or, or is it part of your job actually to educate as well in regards to that at that level?
1: Yeah, I, again, I think many organizations are at very different stages and, and levels. And, you know, sometimes uh, I'll be talking with an organization that are very well advanced and, and their leaders are much more, you know, sophisticated in terms of their understanding or, or, and they're schooling me. And then there are other times when, you know, there are definite barriers that exist within a workplace, whether it's in the pipeline, in terms of recruitment, the talent that you're getting through the door, whether it's in terms of professional development, who's getting leadership roles, I think you know there's a lot of really strong research out there that would you know support that you know we're not seeing the representation of broader society in terms of the cultural diversity in leadership roles you know gender is a really really obvious one in terms of uh, how many women we have in uh, senior leadership roles in ceo roles in board roles all across the country so while you know i definitely think that things like affinity bias or unconscious bias do contribute to selection panels for promotions or you know recruitment for roles. It, it's a much bigger issue throughout a business. So there are definitely a lot of organizations that rapidly upskilling and learning about this stuff because it's never been an issue within the workplace. And then I think as society progresses and changes, the demand and expectations from consumers, from the public, from competitors, all of these things are driving factors. So, you know, any, any any inclusive leader that sits down and evaluates the risks of what are we, you know, experiencing in terms of the, the workplace culture, the legalities, the times, and the legislation and, and impacts that um, have on workers, it's a bit of a no-brainer that, yeah. you know, you want to be the best leader you can be. You know, you want to be able to manage a diverse team. You want to be a part of an organization where people feel connected, respected and um, that they're contributing. So I just think, yeah, There's a bit of a a shift going on, but I do think it's a positive one. And off the back of COVID last year, with a a huge requirement for a lot of workplaces to work remotely, to work flexibly, there's a great opportunity, I think, where leaders are saying, okay, well, here's that opportunity, you know, where we can actually make the types of structural changes in our workplaces that, you know, we have been working towards for a number of years.
0: So with COVID, what opportunities are becoming uh, more evident to us to to connect with our individuality?
1: Mm. I think COVID had a number of really great learnings um, and I've had nothing but uh, I suppose really constructive or positive feedback from workplaces around how the really terrible challenges that came from COVID actually had a positive impact on the workplace. So little things like greater levels of awareness of your colleagues domestic duties or getting a closer connection to your colleagues family members seeing inside, you know, from uh, Zoom calls and uh, all of these uh, different types of, you know, Webex, online uh, meeting forums that people were actually able to see and connect and get a better a bit of a closer understanding of the, the personal identity, not just your professional identity. So I think those factors were really, really positive in terms of creating greater levels of workplace culture. But there were also a number of benefits in terms of accessibility, making sure that you have the tech and you have the infrastructure. I think a lot of every business has had to make a substantial amount of adjustments from their IT teams and and divisions. So, you know, massive thank you to everybody that uh, works in that part of a business because um, we would not have been able to adjust and pivot as quickly as we did. But I also just think, yeah, more broadly, there has definitely been a lot of insights that businesses have had around flexible working and how it's not just about the workplace, but it's the, the hours that you work, the, the type of you know flexible team dynamics that you have. So there's a number of really key learnings I think that down the track uh, will have some really positive takeaways from the you know, impacts of COVID on the workforce. Yeah. Not needing to maintain your commercial lease. Um... <laughs> yes, definitely.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Look, the more the more people I speak to, I know some of my clients. Really, are a bit conservative, actually, and they they seem hesitant to embrace the work from home culture. And I know of some of my clients who immediately, um, as soon as we were allowed back in the office, asked their uh, their employees to come back, if not full time, but most of the time. What do you think, people, businesses who um, have that mentality? What do you think they're afraid of? <sighs>
1: Yeah, it's a very good question. I think there are a number of fears. I don't know if any of the fears are really uh, evidence-based or practically uh, data-driven. I think there's a number of really strong cases out there. There's a a substantial amount of research to support that, you know, workers can be just as productive, if not more, when they have that flexibility of work. So, you know, the ability to come in once a week, to meet with the team, to have those meetings, but then to work from home for the remainder, or for a few other days, and you can be a lot more productive and get a lot more work done because you're not stuck in the day-to-day conversations with colleagues by the, you know, the water cooler, or you're not getting dragged out of, you know, um, putting together a, a, a proposal document. So I think, you know, there's a lot of really clear, strong business arguments, business cases behind why flexible work is, is a great thing. But I also think, from a leader's perspective, you know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You know, you can have a combination of the two. If you enable the workforce and trust your workers to actually have that flexibility, you know, you can be really surprised with how that has a positive impact on, you know, their mental health, their well-being, and overall, you know, effectively makes the workplace more productive to an extent, even profitable. So I think, yeah, maybe the somewhat older school thinking around you need to be at your desk and I need to watch you because that's my job as a leader to make sure you're doing the right thing is shifting just because clearly different businesses and markets weren't that negatively impacted when everybody was forced to work from home. And I also think that as we return to the workplace, it's really important to be mindful of that language. I've heard a lot of organisations say, oh, we're returning to work now.
0: Like we were all on a big holiday.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I've done nothing for the last yeah. 12 months.
0: When probably Whereas, you're working harder than ever, actually.
1: Well, yeah, I would say there's a lot, there's a, a, a greater demand for the work that's going on around this space. You know, workplaces wanting to upskill and implement leading practice around creating flexible workplaces, creating safe and inclusive workplaces for everybody. So, yeah, I think everybody collectively is busier. <laughs> so, if yeah. that's not as a result of us working from home, I don't know what is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> on the other end of the scale, I have also seen the COVID being used as an excuse to not go in and I was talking to somebody about this and the potential effect perhaps on people saying when we're allowed in to say oh no I don't want to come in but especially depending on their career cycle like I did wonder I thought okay I've developed some level of skills in regards to collaboration and being able to communicate effectively but what about you know me when I was in my early 20s I probably was learning quite a bit just by being around colleagues and seniors in the office so what do you think of that and how do we change that aspect of things when people are taking advantage of it and staying at home and perhaps they're missing out on some things
1: yeah definitely I think you know, first things first, there are a number of assumptions that we have around, you know, why a worker wouldn't want to return to the workplace. And leading practice workplaces that have an inclusive workforce or inclusive framework really want to, I suppose, support all workplace, all workers, sorry. So, you know, you may have members of a team that are compromised. You may have elderly working people that are more susceptible to, you know, health risks around COVID. So I think in terms of having an accessible and an inclusive workplace, you know, you need to create that type of working environment where that perhaps assumption that people would exploit not returning to the workplace, because I think more broadly, you know, it, it can be a bit dangerous. I would also just go a little bit further in that if you accept that there are going to be benefits, pros and cons to both sides of, you know, early staff onboarding, learning from being around their peers, but also accept the fact that, you know, there are potentially a number of challenges that come from that as well. I I just don't think it's as clear cut as uh, returning to the workplace is important for those reasons. A workplace can invest the resources that it would have put into the development of a work perth to work remotely and to be upskilled learning. So I think, you know, in terms of how and which, you know, work, is going to evolve and change over the next 20 to 30 years. You know, we'll probably see a lot more remote working because we have got the capacity through it to, I suppose, be a lot more accessible and at the same time to provide additional resources. So I think it's just, it's a, at a stage where things are shifting. And so, you know, I would reverse the question and actually challenge leaders to address, well, how are you going to support entry, you know, new staff in the workplace if they don't have those same opportunities? Yeah. Um, because if you're not, I bet you a competitor would be. And, and, and that's that type of, I suppose, innovative thinking in terms of, well, are we just doing the same thing that we always did because it's what we did? Or are we trying to create, you know, a 21st century workplace where everybody is able to participate and feels included and supported and has the resources to, to bring their best self to the workplace? So I think, yeah, yeah there's, there's two ways of looking at it. <laughs> I
0: think you're right in that. People will be looking for employees, employers now that think outside the box and provide opportunities to cultivate skills in different ways, right, Um, regardless of whether or not you're in the office. So that's really, it's a really interesting time, actually. With The times, though, I'm finding that in Australia we're still quite delicate when we're talking about diversity and inclusion issues. Do you agree with that, or is are you seeing that we're a little bit more, I don't know, um, open and are we able to be vulnerable? Or uh, because what I'm seeing is that we're just still starting out and we do have to approach it very gently sometimes.
1: Yeah, I think you know every state and territory is on its at a very different stage of the dni journey and within the australian context you know you're going to have large workforces that have tremendous amounts of resources that they've invested into their dni planning that they've invested into the workplace culture that they've invested into risk analysis risk management business planning and so you know i would say that you know larger workplaces with greater resources have done a lot more work i would say You know, it's a lot of the uh, small to medium-sized businesses that are, you know, just getting their bearings with some of this stuff. But I also think it's somewhat industry-specific. You probably will find that in every industry, though, that there are people who are hesitant to change. They are resistant to doing things differently. And I think, again, talking around where workplaces are going to be heading in the next 20 to 30 years, we don't know what that looks like. there is change coming we can't anticipate what it will look like so if we don't try to anticipate it and and adopt and make early changes to the way that the workplace functions or operates you're going to potentially fall behind or get caught out and i just think where i do see a lot of pushback is you know around uh, gender equality or gender equity in the workplace so a lot of the conversations that i have with male colleagues is around oh well dni isn't something that benefits me i will lose my job if we do, you know, all these initiatives to, to get other talent into leadership roles. But I suppose for me, I, I always really struggle with that idea because for me, you know, diversity and inclusion is so many different things, a diversity of thought, and my personal and professional identity is only one part of my contributions in the workplace. If you look at the data, and just purely from the business case perspective, Workplaces that are uh, more diverse, more inclusive specifically, generally are more capable of producing you know, higher output because they've been designed in a way that actually supports the workforce to deliver the work. If you're in a workplace that doesn't actually have those drivers or those metrics or doesn't actually, I suppose, prioritize creating that, effectively, you're just creating group with think with groupthink, uh, think tank. And so there's no diversity of thought in that. So no one's going to call out or challenge things, point out things where things aren't you know, the way they are. So I think, you know, just from a pure business, commercial business person um, perspective, that there is a huge amount of advantage that having a diverse team has. And if you manage it in a way where everybody is included and everybody has the opportunity to contribute, it can have a huge impact on the overall output of, of, of all parts of the business. So I really celebrate the idea of diversity of thought and think that we need more of it in every workplace
0: uh, to call out and
1: challenge a lot of the assumptions that we have.
0: How are organisations measuring the impact though? It's all good and well to say that we've got this great diverse and inclusive uh, employee base. How do we measure that that base is creating better work? or that yeah. the output is better. What, what? When it comes to diversity and inclusion, how can we uh, prove the case?
1: Yeah, I think, again, depending on where you are on the journey, some workplaces, diversity and inclusion for them is, oh, we've got a, a person of colour on the website. Um, <laughs> yeah, we've got a, a tick box because we do a, you know, a multicultural lunch uh, every two years. And that's, that's the and I. But I don't think... That is leading practice. I don't think that that is actually evaluating the business case behind. So looking at diagnostics tools to evaluate, are we actually getting better? Do we have increased levels of inclusion in every part of our business? So, you know, there are a number of different ways in which you can go about it. But for me, not being tokenistic is a really, really good starting point.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you know, having established internal working groups that prioritise specific diversity dimensions or streams within the business, having consultation, having leadership buy-in, a lot of these really, uh, I suppose, uh, aren't revolutionary ideas because they've been going on for the last decade. But all of those m- initiatives really do contribute to your overall DNI output. You know, whether or not you are, you've established a business case, you've got a two to three year plan and you've got metrics in place to measure. Are we going on the roadmap where we wanna to get to? Are we going to be the workplace of the 21st century or are we going to continue to uh, lose talent, not really able to retain and have that competitive advantage that you know, uh, another organization has been able to harness, has been able to figure out. It's just like work safety 10 years ago yeah. within the uh, resource sector. There was a lot of work, a lot of campaigning, a lot of discussion around high-vis, jackets, hard hats, <laughs> all of that, work health and safety. If an incident happens, you report it, et cetera. So for me, D&I can be you know, that within the workplace around the psychological safety of workplace.
0: Yes, definitely. Um,
1: creating wow. and educating employees so that they can support each other. Because, again, diversity is, is so much more than just someone's skin colour or their sexual identity or, or, or whatever the mainstream you know, perception can be leading practice progressive I'm talking um, you know around domestic violence policy workplace shared care leave really under uh, really addressing some of the unconscious bias that we have around you know women being primary carers there's so many components to it that again when you look at from a policy or a legislative perspective there's structural inequality built into society and this is where workplaces can really drive and innovate change um, and really lead from the front and show that, you know, they are a progressive and 21st century thinking workplace.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love likening it to the oh journey, because I remember when people rolled their eyes, you know, oh gosh, we've got to put on the hard hats or we got to put on this. But now it's just the way of life and everyone understands the value of it. And actually we're just looking out for people. So yeah, that's a really um, good way of expressing that. I-, I was laughing when you mentioned the uh, person of colour, putting a person of colour on on a cover because I did work, I've worked for various um, branches of government. I worked for a government office at one point and I had to put out communications and in those communications I had to choose an image and in that image one of the people were, uh, was um, brown like me and, and I was told by the head communications person that oh, you know, why did that, that, that image isn't reflective of this area? And I thought, but I live in this area, <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. but
0: I was too scared to kind of say anything because I was a bit younger at the time, but I still to this day think, oh, I should have stood up for myself a bit more. Um. Anyway, that's just a story that came from one of my own experiences.
1: Yeah. And, and I think, so many of us within webplaces have similar types of experiences. I've never been asked to be the photo of anything um, because I'm not um, slightly (laughs) attractive. But um, I I, I do get a sense that, like, I know many of my colleagues that, you know, have felt a little bit exploited at times or, you Am I Am I actually contributing here or is it just you want me to contribute because of, you know, my external physical appearance? Yeah. So, it's
0: terrible that we have to kind of think like that. We pause to, to yeah, to question the um, the motives, right? But yeah, yeah it's yeah. the reality of the world. Um, yeah. So I usually talk about three points of impact. So there's the individual and teams and organisations. So I look at how what we can do are those three areas to affect. Uh, change in regards to diversity inclusion I know we've kind of gone between them throughout but if you were going to implement across an organization all organizations now right now and they said okay Zach let us know uh, at these three points of impact what's one thing we can do at each of these levels what would you choose
1: yeah I think for me a lot of it's around asking questions and being curious so, At an individual level asking questions around well where do you see yourself in the workplace how inclusive do you feel the workplace is how many people in my team look like sound like me have had the same levels of privilege that i have had went to you know the nice schools or you know grew up in a you know a wealthy affluent area these are the kinds of questions for me that you know if If you find yourself in in a boardroom or or a meeting room and everyone looks and sounds the same and has had the exact same lived experiences, I don't think there's gonna be a whole lot of diversity of thought in that. And so, you know, individually, uh, your personal identity and your professional identity are becoming ever increasingly more merged. As we work from home, as we see we're all working more, we're busier, there's a demand or an essential requirement to really, I suppose, create that type of environment where you do feel that you are included and so being mindful as an individual of some of the barriers that a colleague might experience that you've never experienced your level of privilege having worked in a very male dominant industry where everybody spoke over each other all the time and it was like a bit of a, a toxic environment for uh, macho bravado males that type of workplace was never really going to be very welcoming for <laughs> anybody else. If you were an yeah. introverted personality type, if you had had negative experiences of exclusion in, in all of other parts of your life and then you came into this environment, you, the likelihood that you would last wouldn't be very long. Wow. So, yeah. to me, I, it's all about asking questions at an individual level. At a team level, um, you know, I do think that understanding DI and understanding the business case behind DNI, is really, really essential for professional development for the, the line managers, for, for leaders. So whether you are in a leadership role and are managing a team, understanding the importance of this and getting this right is really, really critical. But also from a team perspective, more productive teams feel included, feel connected, feel that they're actually a part of a, a workplace where they are respected. So a lot of it is quite intuitive, but at the same time, there's a lot of research out there. If you go and you look into, you know, um, leading DNI initiatives around individual team organization that really really support um, some of this stuff. And then I think yeah from an organizational perspective you know there's been a lot of quite public incidences in the last few years around sexual harassment, around um, negligence towards climate change initiatives policies, environmental concerns all across the board so, From a governance perspective, you know, an executive board, evaluating the risks that come up within a workplace by not having, you know, a DNI initiative and policy down pat is is really, really critical. Making sure that, you know, your workforce is supported, does have the resources that it requires to to succeed, to thrive. And I suppose for me, the biggest thing is, you know, you see organizations cutting budgets around what is the priority. Um, and so, you know, you could put a lot of resources into tech and making sure you've got the right equipment in the workplace, or you can put the same amount of resources into overtime allowances, professional development. But for me, you know, D&I encompasses a lot of this stuff and it should play into all parts of the business. There's no point going out and spending $1 million on tech that half the workforce can't use for accessibility reasons. Yeah. Um, and, And likewise, all across the board. So it's, for me, a really, really central part of every business plan and should be in every discussion in terms of how does this actually impact the workforce? Because you can't performance manage somebody to do a role that there hasn't been designed to, to actually, you know, to be done. Yeah. Um,
0: it's just setting up people for success, right?
1: Or in some cases, failure.
0: Not failure, yes, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for your time and for talking to us today. How do we get in touch with the Diversity Council or, you know, how do we get in touch with you?
1: Yep, yep. I would definitely say contact Diversity Council um, Uh, instead uh, of me. So not Uh, you directly,
0: just whenever you feel like it?
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, You can uh, definitely reach out to me via LinkedIn, but Diversity Council Australia, www.dca.org.au. It's a really amazing organisation with so much research and knowledge, so much practical tools and guides to assist every workplace on its journey. And yeah, there's just a wealth of knowledge in there that is quite cost-effective enabling uh, workplaces to upskill, create greater levels of awareness, but also develop their planning. Again, a lot of the time where some workplaces, you know, put a lot of effort into, you know, developing a campaign for something um, or an internal workplace plan, it's because a competitor did it. Yeah. Um, And they haven't actually stopped and asked the questions, why are we doing this? And, you know, are we doing it in a way that's effective? Have we got buy-in from the workforce? Do we have consultation? Are leaders involved? You know, it's, it's, it's a whole workplace solution. And that's where I think, yeah, there's some really great stuff um, available through DCA. Yes,
0: yeah, so definitely. the Diversity Council. And thank you so much, Zach, for being here today. Thank you.